0: Turn in your Bibles, if you would, to the book of 2 Samuel, once again. This week we're going to be looking at chapter 17, continuation of the story of Absalom's rebellion and David's flight from Jerusalem. And this chapter speaks loudly about our Lord's providence. It speaks of how David is in God's hands. And one of the things that I want to remind you before we read the text is that when the Old Testament speaks of the Lord, it's not generic. It means the great triune God. And so when it tells us that the Lord is faithful, it's telling us that the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are faithful. And that when the Lord cares for us by His providence, it is the Father, Jesus, and the Spirit caring for us by providence. Do not miss that. Let's now go to our text. If you would please give attention to the reading of God's holy word, for the word of the Lord is completely inerrant. The word of the Lord is completely sufficient. And the word of the Lord is completely authoritative. 2 Samuel 17, beginning at verse 1. Moreover, Ahithophel said to Absalom, Let me choose 12,000 men, and I will arise and pursue David tonight. I will come upon him when he is weary and discouraged, and throw him into a panic, and all the people who are with him will flee. I will strike down only the king, and I will bring all the people back to you as a bride comes home to her husband. You seek the life of only one man, And all the people will be at peace. And the advice seemed right in the eyes of Absalom and all the elders of Israel. Then Absalom said, Call Hushai the Archite also, and let us hear what he has to say. And when Hushai came to Absalom, Absalom said to him, Thus has Ahithophel spoken. Shall we do as he says? If not, you speak. Then Hushai said to Absalom, This time the counsel that Ahithophel has given is not good. Hushai said, You know that your father and his men are mighty men, and that they are enraged like a bear robbed of her cubs in the field. Besides, your father is expert in war. He will not spend the night with the people. Behold, even now he has hidden himself in one of the pits or in some other place. And as soon as some of the people fall at the first attack... Whoever hears it will say, there has been a slaughter among the people who follow Absalom. Then even the valiant man, whose heart is like the heart of a lion, will utterly melt with fear, for all Israel knows that your father is a mighty man and that those who are with him are valiant men. But my counsel is that all Israel be gathered to you from Dan to Beersheba as the sand by the sea for multitude and that you go to battle in person. So we shall come about him in some place where he is to be found, and we shall light upon him as the dew falls on the ground, and of him and all the men with him not one will be left. If he withdraws into a city, then all Israel will bring ropes to that city, and we shall drag it into the valley, and not even a pebble is to be found there. And Absalom and all the men of Israel said, The counsel of Hushai the Archite is better than the counsel of Ahithophel. For the Lord had ordained to defeat the good counsel of Ahithophel, so that the Lord might bring harm upon Absalom. Then Hushai said to Zadok and Abiathar the priests, Thus and so did Ahithophel counsel Absalom and the elders of Israel. And thus and so have I counseled. Now therefore, send quickly and tell David, do not stay tonight at the fords of the wilderness, but by all means pass over, lest the king and all the people who are with him be swallowed up. Now Jonathan and Ahimaaz were waiting at Enrogel. A female servant was to go and tell them, and they were to go and tell King David, for they were not to be seen entering the city. But a young man saw them and told Absalom, So both of them went away quickly and came to the house of a man at Baharim who had a well in his courtyard. And they went down into it. And the woman took and spread a covering over the well's mouth and scattered grain on it, and nothing was known of it. When Absalom's servants came to the woman at the house, they said, Where are Ahimaaz and Jonathan? And the woman said to them, They have gone over the brook of water. And when they had sought and could not find them, They returned to Jerusalem. After they had gone, the men came up out of the well and went and told King David. They said to David, Arise and go quickly over the water, for thus and so has Ahithophel counseled against you. Then David arose, and all the people who were with him, and they crossed Jordan. By daybreak, not one was left who had not crossed the Jordan. When Ahithophel saw that his counsel was not followed, he saddled his donkey. And he went off home to his own city. He set his house in order and hanged himself. And he died and was buried in the tomb of his father. Then David came to Mahanim. And Absalom crossed the Jordan with all the men of Israel. Now Absalom had set Amasa over the army instead of Joab. Amasa was the son of a man named Ithra the Ishmaelite, who had married Abigail, the daughter of Nahash, sister of Zeruiah, Joab's mother. And Israel and Absalom encamped in the land of Gilead. When David came to Mahanim, Shobai, the son of Nahash from Rabbah of the Ammonites, and Machir, the son of Amiel from lo debar and Barzillai, the Gileadite from Rogalim, brought beds, basins, and earthen vessels, wheat, barley, flour, parched grain, beans, and lentils, Honey and curds and sheep and cheese from the herd. For David and the people with him to eat. For they said, the people are hungry and weary and thirsty in the wilderness. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for his blessing upon it. Lord, we ask that you would open up your word to us. That in your word we would see you your character, your attributes, your work, and your providence. This we ask in Christ's precious name. Amen. Everywhere, the providence of God surrounds us. The providence of God governs all His creatures and all their actions. But most often we don't think about the providence of God. We're either overwhelmed by circumstances or lulled to sleep by our circumstances instead. Our focus is not upon God at work. But if God is sovereign, if it's true that He has numbered the very hairs on your head and numbered the very days of your life, then you can trust Him. And look to Him. That's what we see here. David is in a situation that seems hopeless. And yet, he is safe in the hands of the sovereign promise-keeping God. So what I would like us to see here in this text is the providence of God at work. And the first thing that we see is a sovereign promise providence. God's sovereign providence. Now we pick up the text here in chapter 17 at the most dangerous moment of David's life. Now that is saying a lot considering all the things that have happened to David. But David has fled Jerusalem in a rush with a force of perhaps 2,000 men and his son Absalom has started a rebellion against him. He's entered the city, and now he's looking to finish David off. Can you imagine what David is thinking? Can you imagine the discouragement that must be running through his mind? And even if we know that Absalom is not exactly the wisest person around, we can't forget Ahithophel. You've heard me tell you this before, but I want you once again to take your thumb And put it over the big number 17 that occurs in your text. Because the chapter and verse divisions are not inspired. And we have to read chapter 17 with the lead in from the last verse of chapter 16. Now in those days, the counsel that Ahithophel gave was as if one consulted the word of God. Telling us how Ahithophel is the wisest of counselors. And then he begins in chapter 17 to Come up with a plan of advice for Absalom. And it seems to be sure to succeed. It has all the hallmarks of the best military strategy. Ahithophel says, first, we need to strike quickly. Look at verse 1. He says, we need to gather 12,000 men and go out tonight. We can't rest. We can't wait for dawn. Even though normally military action was taken during the daylight, we need to go out at night. We can't give David a moment's peace. We have to go and finish him off. We cannot give him a chance to regroup his forces. And then Ahithophel says, we need to use devastating force. While David and his men are tired, while they're exhausted, we need to strike them and throw them into a panic and drive them off in a rout. Thirdly, In verse 2, he says, we need to focus on our objective. We want to get David. He's the one you want to kill. Kill the king and the rebellion succeeds. David's forces are through without David. That's all that needs to happen that will end the conflict. And he says, this will be effective because with David dead, All of David's men will come back to us. They will be loyal to you, Absalom, as the king. They will swell our ranks and everyone will be at peace. This is an effective strategy. Now, this advice seems right to everyone we see in verse 4. It seemed right in the eyes of Absalom and all the elders of Israel. Now, you need to know that being wicked has not made Ahithophel stupid. No. His advice... It's brilliant. It's exactly what Absalom should do. And so all seems lost at this point. We've seen David march off with a few troops and he's actually weighed down with women and children going off with them. He's not prepared for a fight. He isn't organized. His men aren't organized and equipped. And we have been told the brilliant counsel of Ahithophel. It's important for us to remember that the godly do not have a monopoly on natural abilities. Unbelievers often possess great intelligence and natural ability. Just because you believe in Jesus does not give you a magic bullet to make all of your circumstances good. This is a precarious situation for David. But just when we think it's all over, The most unexpected thing happens. Instead of just acting on Ahithophel's advice, Absalom decides to bring Hushai in for more advice. Look at verse 5. Call Hushai the archite and let us hear what he has to say. It's almost a last minute kind of thing. Why does he do this? Well, I have to tell you, there's no good explanation. I don't know why. I've read many commentators. They don't know why. Why would Absalom bring in Hushai? It makes no sense, especially since it wasn't that long ago when Absalom mistrusted Hushai's loyalty. You'll remember that from chapter 16. But not only does he call in Hushai, he doesn't ask him for his advice in a vacuum. He says, now this is exactly what Ahithophel told me. Do you have any criticisms of it? It's it's as if Absalom is designing this to fail. Hushai knows exactly what he's up against. And this is important because Hushai is a spy. He is David's man in the court. And he hears Ahithophel's advice. And he immediately knows the danger that it presents for David. And so he proceeds to give a plan that will produce delay. That will allow David to get away, to gather himself, and to be organized. But he gives his counterproposal in such a way as to undermine the credibility of Ahithophel's plan. And what he does with this, you will notice that it is an overwhelming piece of advice. Hushai's advice is three times as long. As Ahithophel's. When when Ahithophel's giving his advice, you get the impression he's ready to get on the horse now. Let me tell you quickly. Act quickly, Absalom. There's not a moment to lose. We need to go now. Whereas Hushai wants to tell a story. He not only gives advice, he gives long, florid illustrations about bears and about lions and their hearts, and caves, and cities. I mean, it's as if he's trying to buy David time just by talking. Now, he starts out rather boldly. He says, not good is the counsel Ahithophel has given. That's literally the word order in the Hebrew. Not good is that counsel. Now, he does soften it just a little bit, With this adverb of time. This time. Yes, Absalom, I will grant you that Ahithophel is brilliant. And his advice is great for a king to follow in the most part. But I think this time, it would be good not to follow it. And the advice that Hushai gives appeals directly to Absalom and his character. Or we might say. Lack of character. His first part of his argument is one from knowledge. He says to Absalom, here in verse 8, You know what your father's like. It's implicit here. Ahithophel may have forgotten what a mighty man of war David is, but you, Absalom, you're brilliant. You know. You grew up with your father. You know all the stories of his battles against the Philistines and against the Ammonites and against Saul and you know he's a mighty man of war. He's experienced. Ahithophel may just say we can go out and kill David but does he even think he can find David? Isn't that one of David's traits over the history of his life that he hid from Saul for year after year after year? And by the way, the place where he is is full of caves and full of pits. You're not going to kill him. You're not even going to find him. In the dark? Really? And so he appeals to knowledge. He says David won't even be with the people. He'll be off somewhere with his soldiers ready to spring a trap. The second appeal that Hushai makes is one of fear. Now, again, let's remember who Absalom is. Absalom is more concerned with cutting and weighing and looking at his hair than he is with leading an army. He's not exactly a soldier's soldier. And so Hushai plays on this. He says, Ahithophel says David's men are tired and scared, but I don't think that's the case. These are mighty men. They're like a cornered bear. And if you go out after them, they're going to lash out at you. They're going to destroy your men. They're actually hoping you come for a fight so that they can strike out against you. And then as they inflict some casualties, panic will set into your troops. They'll start to say, there's a slaughter among our troops and your troops will run. And you'll lose the advantage. Without proper preparations, Absalom, you could have a disaster on your hands. And then thirdly, he appeals to Absalom's vanity. He says, do not send. A small force tonight. No, no, no. Gather an army. A big army. No, no. The biggest army Israel has ever seen. From way in the north at Dan to way in the south at Beersheba. Don't send 12,000 men. Send 112,000 men. And you, Absalom, you need to be at the front of that army. You are the only man in Israel that could raise and lead such an army. Now, notice something from the way these two pieces of advice are given. Look at Ahithophel's advice in verses 1 and 3. There's a lot of me, and I, and I will, and I will do. It's all about Ahithophel act. And then, who's the subject of Hushai's advice? It's Absalom. It's you. You will do. You will lead. You will get all the glory. It's as if is saying, this is not the time for a nighttime commando raid that you send a junior associate out on. No. This is the time for a glorious army with King Absalom at its front to win the victory. There's one final aspect of Absalom's character that Hushai appeals to. It's his hatred. Because he says, what you need to do is not just kill David. No, no, no. Look at verses 12 and 13. We need to come upon David and all of his men like dew falls on the ground to cover it all. And not one of them will be left. No, Absalom, you don't want any of David's men to survive. After all, they didn't side with you from the beginning. They're against you. Don't you want to take it out on them? They don't deserve to live. They've sided with David. We don't just kill David. No, we want to wipe them all out. And you know what? It works. It may seem amazing because Ahithophel's counsel was good, that is, It was effective, not moral, but effective, as always. But where Ahithophel knew how to defeat David, Hushai knew how to stroke Absalom's ego. He knew how to win over Absalom, and that's what it took. But there's something else here that we know that Absalom doesn't know, that Ahithophel doesn't know, that not even Hushai knows. We know really why Ahithophel's counsel failed, and it's in the second half of verse 14. For the Lord had ordained, or commanded, to defeat the good counsel of Ahithophel, so that the Lord might bring harm upon Absalom. It was the Lord. Hushai was clever, But it wasn't his cleverness that won the day. It was God's decree that Absalom would fail. And therefore he brought about Ahithophel's counsel coming to nothing. Now this should not surprise us because the Lord had previously promised David an eternal kingdom in 2 Samuel 7. And this entire rebellion is a fulfillment of God's word of judgment on David. Even though we don't see the Lord's name until verse 14, the Lord is at work behind all of this. God's providence is sovereign. It can't be overcome. And this should give us great comfort. We can rely upon what God says in His Word, especially when we are not able to see Him at work. Well, that's the main point of our text today. There are two other things that we can see about God's providence more briefly. The next thing that we see is that God's providence is liberating. It is a liberating providence. Now, what do I mean by that? I mean that there is an interaction between God acting in His providence and people acting in such a way to fulfill it. God's sovereignty does not mean that we are robots or that we have no will to act. And we see this, first of all, in Absalom. Absalom was fulfilling God's preordained defeat of Ahithophel's counsel when he chose Hushai's plan. But at the same time, Absalom was acting in the way that he wanted to. It was the appeal to his desires and his nature that won the day. If Absalom were here right now and we asked him, why did you do that? He would say, because I wanted to. Because I thought it was right. Because it was something that spoke to me in my heart. Now, do not let Absalom off the hook here. His sin is fully responsible For the ruin that is about to come on him. Not God. Knowing that God is sovereign does not make you passive. It should actually spur you on to action. Knowing that the Lord is in control. So now the plot of our drama continues. Hushai rushes out to go to Zadok and Abiathar. You remember that David told him that was how he had to get news to him. And he rushes out because he doesn't know in the end what Absalom is going to do. Of course, Absalom could change his mind and go back to Abiathar's counsel. Or we don't even know. It's certainly possible that before Absalom made his decision, he dismissed Hushai. Hushai wasn't there for the beginning of the discussion It's very likely he wasn't there for the end of the discussion. So Hushai leaves and he has to tell David, I don't know if my counsel will be taken and you'll have some time. You need to assume 12,000 men are coming after you right now. Get out of Dodge as quickly as possible. Now this plan requires action by a number of people. It is a breathless plan. It is almost like a spy novel or a film. You see, they need to get word to Jonathan and Ahimaaz, who will tell David what is going on. There's a prearranged meeting place. And so what they need to do is Hushai tells a maid servant to go out to the place where Jonathan and Ahimaaz are. Pretend you're going to get water because after all, who's going to think a young woman carrying a bucket is a threat in a time of war. So she gathers her water bucket and goes out to the place to find Jonathan and Ahimaaz. She's going to pass the message on to them, and they're going to go to David, and that's the way that it goes from the council room of Absalom to David. But now, there's a problem. Do you see it in verse 18? They're spotted. There's a man of Absalom. We don't know who. We don't know why. But there's a young man who sees them. And he goes and he tells Absalom. And Absalom knows that word may be trying to get out to David. He doesn't know exactly what's going on, but he he knows there are potential spies. And if someone is outside the city, lurking around, whispering, that better be checked out. We better make sure they don't get off into the countryside to talk to David. And so Absalom gathers up a few troops and he goes after them. Now Jonathan and has know they're found out. And so what they do is they go to find the help of yet some other people. They go to a place called Baharim. And they find a man. We're not told his name. He is a David loyalist presumably because he's helping David's men we, I think, have the idea that he is a fairly wealthy man because he has his own private well. Not everyone had their own well. You know, you should count it a blessing that you can go home today and turn on a spigot and from five or six or seven sources get clean water. In David's day, you used to have to go to a central location, let down a bucket and... Bring up a small amount of water for yourself. And so this man, the fact that he had his own well, tells us he's a well-to-do, wealthy man. And so Jonathan Ahima has come, and he says, look, hide in the well. Now, this is where I think it's interesting. I'm I'm reading into this drama, but he says, get in the well. And I can almost imagine his wife looks at him and says, you do know the first place they're going to look is in the well, don't you? Now, men are men of action, but oftentimes ladies are people of detail. And she says, let me go get this covering, and I'll cover up the well, and we'll throw some grain on top of it. It'll look like the ground with dirt. No one will even know there's a well there, because after all, not many people have wells. No one will even think, where's the well, let alone look into it. And so Absalom's men come, and they ask, where are Jonathan and Ahimaaz?" Now, you have to picture this. The man is nowhere to be found. He doesn't want anything out of the ordinary. He's at home in his house, asleep. And she looks at Absalom's men. And you have to understand, they have gone north to David. And she says, oh yes, they were here. They went that way, south. You better go after them as quick as you can, as far as you can, as fast as you can. She doesn't say, I don't know. She doesn't say, I'm not sure. She actually sends them in the opposite direction so that there will be safety for Jonathan and Ahimehas. Now, a very brief aside. You may be wondering, does this mean it's okay to lie? No. But I think we need to be understanding of circumstances. So, for example, is it okay to break the Sabbath? No. But if your ox is in the ditch, you can get him out. Is it okay to disobey your father and mother? No. But if they tell you to do something ungodly or sinful, then yes, you may disobey them. In the same way here, if someone comes to you and giving them the truth would permit them to murder and break one of God's commandments, it's not so clear cut that you owe them the truth. So this is what... This woman does in a long line of others, like the Hebrew midwives and others who protect through a lie. Well, Jerusalem's men go back, or excuse me, Absalom's men go back to Jerusalem empty handed. But what I want you to see is do you see how many people here are involved taking quick and decisive action? Yet we have already been told that the Lord was going to bring harm or disaster to Absalom. So how does this work? Is God in control or not? Are people acting or not? The answer is yes. How does this work? It shows us that when God is at work, it is not boring and passive. God uses people to bring about his decree in such a way that no violence is done to their will. Absalom wanted to reject Ahithophel's counsel. Hushai and his friends wanted to help David. They were bold, decisive. We see this throughout the Bible in what we call narrow escapes. We can often miss them because we know the rest of the story. Think about Moses' parents hiding him after he was born. And then they just happened to put him in an ark in the river. And that just happens to be the exact time that Pharaoh's daughter decides to bathe in the river. And she just happens to hear Moses who just happens to cry at that very opportune moment. And she just happens to take him in, into the palace where he is trained as a leader of men. Coincidence and chance? Think about Queen Athaliah. You may not remember her. She occurs in 2 Kings 11. Suffice it to say that she makes Jezebel look good. She actually kills all of her own grandchildren to try to wipe out the line of David. But there just happens to be a nurse who just happens to scoop up young Joash and just happens to hide him for six years so that the line of David can go forward. Or what about Esther? You remember Esther? She was the one who was raised for such a time as this. But do you remember that when she was to tell the king about the plot to murder all the Jews. It was at the occasion of a feast. It was a two-day feast, and this is important. Because on day one of the feast, she says to the king, my king, I need to tell you something. I need to request a favor of you. I need to tell you something that's on my heart. But I'll tell you tomorrow, at tomorrow's feast. And the king says, yes, speak to me. And the feast is over, and the king goes home, and it just so happens he's struck with insomnia and can't go to sleep. First time in weeks. And he says to a servant, bring me something to read. That will probably calm me down and I can go to sleep. And the servant just happens to go and to pull off of the shelf the one volume that he opens to the page exactly that tells of how Mordecai has saved the king's life. It's pure coincidence, I'm sure. And Mordecai says, has, or excuse me, the king says, has Mordecai been rewarded for this? And the servant says, no, nothing's been done for him. And he says, "We'll I have to do something about that. And the next day, Haman comes back. He's all ready to kill Mordecai and the Jews. They've built a gallows, a hanging, noose hanging. His family is egging him on. And the king says to Haman, what should the king do for the one who has benefited him and blessed him? And of course, Haman thinks he's talking about Haman. And he goes on and on eloquently about all the ways that the king should bless the one who has served him. And the king looks at Haman and he says, you're exactly right. Go ahead and get Mordecai and shower all those gifts on him. Now, if you want to get a picture of someone going insane in a moment's notice snapshot Haman. He can't believe it. And then the second day of the feast comes. And now all of this has been set up and Esther's not sure if she makes this request, if she's going to be killed by the king, but it feeds right into where the king is. She says, oh king, would you please help Mordecai and my people? And he says, of course I would. Who would possibly want to hurt Mordecai? He saved my life. And she says, that man, Haman. And that, my friends, is where we get the saying, being hoist on one's own petard. More modern translation, hanged with your own noose that you built. That's what happens. You see, life is full of drama and events that seem beyond our control. But they're not beyond God's control. We need to spend less time poring over the news and over stories of trouble and spend more time reading and trusting God's Word. Well, then there is this final thing that we see about God's providence. God's providence is precise. It is a precise providence. Now, what do I mean by that? Often we think of God as being at work in the big things of life. We could picture him preserving David the king, stymieing the advice of Ahithophel, bringing about the birth of Jesus Christ through the line of David, in spite of all the difficulties. But what about the small things of your life? Do you see God in them? David, in verse 24, comes to Mahanim. It's Ishbosheth's old capital. And then we're treated to a description of Absalom and the army camping in Gilead. And we're told about this family feud that now has extended beyond father and son to now cousins are going at it. Because we find out that Amasa, who's in charge of Absalom's army, is Joab's cousin. There's a lot of hatred going on here. Can you picture this in your mind's eye? Absalom's army is all fitted out for battle. They are ready to go. But what about David? Well, David had just run out of Jerusalem. Have you ever had to run out of your home unexpectedly? Maybe because there was a fire or because you received an emergency phone call, you had to go. You always forget something, don't you? You can't carry something out. You know, there's a running joke in my family whenever we travel, whether it's by car or by plane. Once we get going and we're past the point where we can go back to the house, we say, what did we forget? Let's try and figure out what we forgot so then we can figure out how to deal with the trip without that. You know, one time I went to China, forgot to bring my glasses. I didn't need my glasses. I had my contacts in. Who needs glasses? Except for when you have to take your contacts out. Then you're in trouble. And you can't exactly just walk into any old place in China and say, give me glasses. Right? That was what I forgot. I'm sure you have a similar experience. Well, David has pretty much nothing. He doesn't have any beds. He doesn't have any food. He doesn't even have anything to cook the food with if he had food. No pots, no pans, nothing like that. Not a big spork or a spoon or a fork. So the question that we have to ask is, we know God cares about David to preserve his life and the throne, but does he care to provide for ordinary, mundane things like mattresses and pots and pans, cheese and beans? And the answer is yes. And how he does it is marvelous to see. Three men come to meet David. They come unexpectedly, and they're unexpected men. One, Shobai, is a pagan. He's an Ammonite. One, Machir, is a Saul loyalist. He was the one that um, Mephibosheth had stayed with. The third one is an 80-year-old man, Barzillai. Now, no offense, But when you're fighting a war, you don't exactly say to yourself, how can I recruit the most octogenarians I can? I need a bunch of 80-year-olds. No. These three men, they come, and it's almost, what will they have? What do you expect? But they provide. And that provision brings encouragement. And that encouragement is not just because Shobai remembers David's support after Hanan's attack on Israel. It's not just because Machir remembered David's kindness to Mephibosheth. It's not just the fact that Barzillai risks everything after a lifetime of service. No, the encouragement is that God cares for David. And he shows this through these simple everyday things. God is not so busy with the great things of the world that he forgets David's need for beans and cheese, pots and pans, and a place to sleep. Remember this scene at the end of chapter 17 when you wonder next time if God cares about that job interview you have or your broken down car Or your presentation at work. Or your test at school. We serve a very big God. So big that He does not forget or ignore the small things of your life. Our Lord is a sovereign Lord. He is working all things together for His glory and for the good of His children. If you have trusted the Lord Jesus Christ for your salvation and the forgiveness of sins, know that it was because God brought you to Himself. And if you're still wondering about who Jesus is, or what He has done, or what that means for you, know that it's not an accident that you are here today. God has brought you here to hear the good news of the gospel. The good news about who he is, so that you might believe and be saved. Will you hear God now? Will you look to Jesus? When you know Jesus, you see that God is a great, loving, sovereign, promise keeping God. And that, in spite of all the drama of life, of pain, and sorrow, of uncertainty and fear, that gives hope. Let's pray.